and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. If you, like me, adore nature and love staring at it, then Leica are a company you totally need to check out. Getting closer to nature is what we all need to be doing and Leica Sport Optics certainly help you do that. I'm new to the world of binoculars and wasn't sure how best to use them, but with Leica's easy-to-use models and high-end technology, it didn't take me long before I was seeing wildlife like I've never seen it before. And now, on with the show. Hello, nature nerds, wildlife lovers, eco-freaks. Are you all alright with me referring to us all as eco-freaks? I assume you are. Please write in if you're not. Um, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Into the Wild. How are you all doing? I hope you're well. Um, I've hurt my hand. I don't know what I've done. I think I've, I hit it on a door earlier today as I was walking past because, <laughs> because apparently my limbs are so long I can't control them. But I, I really hurt. It didn't hurt at the time. And now, like a few hours later, I've been editing this episode today and it's killing me. So I, I don't want to be too dramatic, but I think I might die. Um, if you can all send some sympathy e-cards to into the wild pod at gmail.com that'd be very lovely <laughs> i can't wait to see them flooding <laughs> it really hurts i don't know i hope i'm all right let's talk about migration why the heck not um <laughs> that's what today's show is about well it's about two things actually today's show it's about migration and bird ringing um migration is something we all know that happens we all look forward to seeing different animals arrive in the uk throughout different seasons and arrive into this beautiful confusing little island that we live on but it's not something i really knew about like you know the different animals i mean birds are the big ones are like birds are the <laughs> the the big migratory animals because they fly but there's other animals you know you've got marine animals that migrate um in and out of the uk and other areas around the world and you've got insects them um, so i thought who should i chat to so i thought who better than chatting to assistant field worker and bird ringer ellie mayhew um, we spoke about all about different animals that migrate in and out of the UK. And then we had a lovely chat about bird ringing, about how it's done, um, why it's done, and how it's used in wildlife conservation as well. So it was a really lovely chat. And today, with my very sore hand, it was a nice way to take my mind off it. It was just listening back to this episode. It was a lovely chat with Ellie. Um, so thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy the show, and I'll talk to you at the end. Ellie, welcome to the show. That was a very shouty way to start. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Just yelling at you at the beginning of the show. God, calm down. Do you know why? I've just had a coffee. Uh, I should oh, never no. have a coffee before. I, I shouldn't. I should have a Valium, if anything. That's what I should be having. <laughs> Ellie, welcome to Into the Wild. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, this is the warmest I've been all day. And in London now, the sun's actually come out. But it was so cold. Like... I had that moment today where I looked at my weather app last night and it was like, oh, sunny skies all day. It's going to be two degrees. But I was like, that's fine because it'll be dry. Woke up this morning to a fresh sleet of snow. I was like, damn it, BBC weather. Damn you and you lies. So, yeah, I'm warm. That's the main thing. That's a massive um, It is, isn't it? Um, it's lovely to have you on the show. Um, before we get going, the most important question of all, Ellie, is would you like to start by telling everyone who you are and what is it you do? Yes, I would love to. My name's Ellie Mayhew and I'm an ecologist and a conservationist. Um, I currently work for a small wildlife charity that's based up in Oxford, although I live near the New Forest. Um, and before I worked at my current job, I was in South Africa for six months working as a research assistant. And before that, I was at uni doing conservation biology and ecology. So it's all very naturey kind of stuff. It is very me. naturey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, first of all, I've got to say, because I've seen pictures on Instagram of you at the New Forest. Damn, the New Forest looks amazing. It is. It's such a nice place to live, especially at the moment, obviously, with COVID. It's been such a godsend being able to go out and just walk, you know, just explore. And we're really lucky in that we're in quite a quiet part of the forest. It's not very touristy. So even in the summer, you can find places to walk and you just won't see any other humans, which is kind of nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love the way like you worded that. You won't see life. any other humans. <laughs> yeah. I was, that's, that was going to be one of my questions. Was um, In lockdown, have you noticed that more footfall has been in places like the New Forest? Because everywhere else is struggling with that, I think. Has it been yeah. the same there? 
massively. I've been moaning about it so much to my parents. <laughs> and and but the thing is, is I mean, I was saying to Dad yesterday because we were out in the forest, and I said I'm worried about like, for example, we get night jars just up the road from us, and usually that kind of part of the forest is super undisturbed but I worry that with so many people walking their dogs I mean there's just been so many more people than normal and also um people parking on the verges which they're not meant to do and that's that's really bad but um and like littering and that kind of thing is obviously really bad for the ponies and the other stock on the forest so it's I've definitely seen increased pressure here yeah um and all the places that we used to walk that used to be really quiet actually have more people as well so it's a bit like, oh, go away. <laughs> yeah, it's a real swings and roundabout kind of thing because my my nearest big green space is Hampstead Heath. It's only about 20 minutes away. And it's been so much... So I've been like a bank holiday every day, like when the sun's out. As soon as it rains, mm. everyone goes. But when the sun's <laughs> out, it's like it's rammed up there. But the difference with Hampstead Heath is that it's such a, it's, it supports such urban wildlife that the wildlife adapts so it's it, mm. you know if there's any massive change they do concerts up there and there's still you know a healthy population of breeding bats and you've got different birds they just don't care as much but my worry is other places in the uk that aren't as urbanized wildlife that doesn't mm. usually have these impacts coming in that i think that's where we're going to see the potential changes this is not what i was planning on talking about for the beginning of the podcast <laughs> yeah <we're really laughs> but, it is, <laughs> we have. but it is an interesting chat and i think over the next year I think it's going to be really interesting to see how landscapes um, around the UK have changed and what their recovery plan is. I think it's now mm. that people need to start going, right, what the hell do we need to do to get it back to what it was? I think, personally, I'm, I'm optimistic for the urban areas. I think they're a bit more city-like. Mm, yeah. <laughs> they're used to it. So, my next question, again, an into the wild one, is how... I mean, if you have you always lived near the New Forest? Pretty much, yeah, apart from uni and, when, yeah, more or less. So this next question is going to be a really obvious answer. <laughs> Indy Green, he when he answered this question, he was like, well, yeah, obviously. And then I spoke to my last guest I spoke to lives in Barbados. And I was like, well, no wonder. But, but the question is, how, how and when did your love for wildlife and nature begin? I mean, you live in the New Forest. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, see, since I can remember, really, I... Um, I was actually looking through some stuff the other day that mum had kept and um, it was like some little drawings I'd done of some ants when I was about six years old because I'd written I'm lying on the lawn watching these ants and I was like oh my god I was like <laughs> a mini naturalist <laughs> then um, but I yes I've always loved it I, I did go through a phase in secondary school where I was like super uncool to like wildlife so I think it I sort of damped it down a bit. And then when I started bird ringing when I was 16, I was like, oh my God, actually I love it. And I don't care if other people think it's uncool because it's just so cool. Um, but yeah, and we also get stag beetles in our village and they are like my love. Like I absolutely yeah, adore I them. Yeah, I love stag beetles. They're so cool. And they have massively, like I've always just found them fascinating. And when I used to find them in the garden as a kid, it would just be like, wow, look at this. Like that's just incredible. And you know learning more about their life history and stuff you're just like whoa so yeah so lots of outdoor time in the new forest but also just the wildlife literally in my garden was just like wow i haven't seen stag beetles for ages you know last time i saw them was when i was living in southwest london and there was the uh, the town i lived in was surbiton and there's a really very oddly a very healthy population of stag beetles in surbiton like every summer Mm. you'd see them crossing roads and you'd be like, ah! yeah. <laughs> like grabbing them yeah. and putting them back in the in the park and stuff. But since I've not lived in that area for the last seven, eight years, I really miss them. And I said this to my girlfriend, mm. like, I really miss stag beetles. Is that weird? And then she laughs at me and then we have to move on. But <laughs> um, Yeah, I don't blame you. Oh, they're just so lovely. They're just they're they're really surprisingly big. And I I think we're not used to seeing those kind of big invertebrates just walking around. So I think it kind of takes yeah, us. Yeah, right, back. definitely. Um yeah. Today's show, we are focusing on animals visiting the UK, obviously known as migration. So um, I'm going to jump straight in with our first main question, Ellie, is why do animals migrate? This is a big question. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So migration takes many forms, I suppose, like lots of different types of animals migrate and there are different reasons that they migrate um and and I suppose I mean one 
when I think of migration, you kind of automatically think, okay, like something traveling a really long way, but not everything does. Like there's um, the the bird that holds the Guinness World Record for the shortest bird migration <laughs> is this bird called the blue grouse um, in North America. And it actually migrates about 300 meters and it migrates. So in winter, it likes to be in these really heavily forested areas. <laughs> And in the summer, it likes to be in these open areas um, where it breeds. And it just migrates up and down a mountain slope, which seems a bit half-arsed to me compared to, like, like the ones that travel a really long way. (laughs) When is it migration and when is it just a walk? Well, this is the thing. I remember I did a migration (laughs) module at uni Mm. and it's it's actually really hard to specifically define migration. Um, So not all migrations are return migration so in insects um you know for example the monarch butterfly there's like three or five generations sort of going up so like as they migrate so it's it's never just like one monarch butterfly going there and back again and so it's that kind of thing that that's what makes it really hard to define I suppose so um it's something like a straightened out um sort of movement that is just to get from A to B, like something like okay. that. I can't remember the exact definition. But yeah, so that's kind of... And then you compare that to like an Arctic turn that goes from <laughs> the Arctic to the Antarctic, which is like a lot more effort, right? And it's still called migration. So, um, and and I suppose as well, like you get migratory crabs, bats, you know, wildebeest in the Serengeti, zooplankton moving up and down the water column. So it's so varied. Um and so I guess the reasons that they do migrate is super varied. I suppose here in the UK, where we've we've got a pretty crappy winter, as we know, as when, you know, you're saying that you're warm now, but yeah. it's really cold. So if you're an animal, you've got like, you've got four options, haven't you? You either stick it out like a blue tit or a great tit or you know, something else that doesn't hibernate. Then you've got the things that hibernate like hedgehogs and dormice. Um, and then you've got things that, um, enter diapause so that's more insecty things like they might overwinter as a chrysalis or an egg um, oh, okay. or you can migrate and just like can get the hell out of it <laughs> um, for the winter <laughs> what one would you do? which is what I would do I would definitely migrate would you I am such a warm weather person yeah <laughs> what would you do <laughs> um I'm a warm weather person I'd probably migrate or hibernate I mean I'm also mm-hmm. not opposed to a duvet day and a Netflix marathon but I don't know if I could do that for three yeah. months. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> I could go to like yeah. Spain for three months. I know that. <laughs> I think, yeah, I'd probably migrate. But anyway, yeah. So basically, I've not even got onto the point why species <laughs> migrate. So <laughs> there's lots of different reasons. So the, the main reason is to take advantage of seasonal bouts of resources, which is usually food. Um, so, for example, in the UK... As I've just said, some species tough it out. We have resident um, animals that will just, you know, survive the winter. But a lot of them do die because there aren't the resources Mm. to make it through winter. So when we get to summer or spring and we get these mass emergences of insects and this crazy growth of plant life, there's loads of kind of surplus resources so the migratory animals move in to then exploit them and use them themselves. Um, and some migratory species actually time their migration um, to coincide with the kind of mass emergence of a certain species. Oh, wow, OK. So you get things that, you know, like up in the Arctic, you get this mass emergence of mosquitoes after the snow melt. Um, and and so they kind of move in to take advantage of those. Um, some animals, which is what I would do, migrate to get away from the cold northern winter. So it's just because it's it's less energetically costly um, to spend the winter somewhere warm. Then some kind of maybe less known things. So another thing that animals mig- migrate for is daylight. So, for example, in Brent geese, they um, have kind of pretty inefficient digestive systems because mm. they're ruminants, so they just eat, like, grass and plant material yeah. um, and if they migrate up to the arctic in summer it means that they can eat like all the time <laughs> it's like a 24 7 <laughs> all you can eat buffet um, and they have this ability to feed constantly on relatively like low nutrient sort of plant material yeah. i guess um, so that's quite cool and also up in the arctic as well 
there's low predator density um so if you go up and you breed in the arctic then you're less likely i think i read somewhere ages ago that like with every degree um latitude that increases like the predation risk decreases by whatever amount like 2.6 percent or something i can't really oh, wow. remember okay um but it's, yeah so that's really interesting and lastly what i was saying about the monarch butterflies which is that you get these kind of multi-generational um movements so that you can basically have a continuous breeding cycle so you're moving like along a kind of okay temperature belt if that makes sense so so that you can always be having a breeding cycle so I think they're kind of the main ones but there's so many different reasons and I think there's still a bit of a question mark over it so I've probably not covered everything well god no I don't think you could like I mean if every there's there's got to be a different reason I mean to me migration and not study this, but migration to me is to move with a purpose. You know, there's a reason why you mm. make it's not just going, I'm wandering over there for a bit or going to this. It's like there's actually an instinctive yeah. reason why you're going. And like you said from the butterflies, going to keep that consistent temperature to make sure you're grand everywhere you go. And the next yeah. season that kind of rather than rushing it to get it all done in the four months in the one country, you can go, Well, keep moving with it and it's fine. Um for the UK and you mentioned a few species there. Well, what kind of variety of animals do we have um, that visit the UK? We, ha- we actually have more than you might think. I, like I said, I did a mi- migration module at uni and I was amazed by how many different things actually do visit the UK um, that you might not know about. So, for example, we have a lot of different insects that migrate. Um, things like ladybirds. We get like loads of ladybirds really? migrating really high up. Yeah. Um, things like hoverflies and butterflies and moths, which people might be more familiar with, like popping out mm. a moth trap or, you know, seeing um, a painted lady or something. Um, but I I found it really interesting because, the, for example, the moths that you tend to get that are migratory, they're usually species that are really generalist species. Mm. So they, they're polyphagous, which means they feed on loads of different types of plants. And, and most of them feed on like over 100 different plants as caterpillars. So I found that quite interesting because I suppose it means that it's not so much of a chance migrating because you come over and you're fairly likely to find at least one of your caterpillar yeah, that's plants true. to lay your eggs. Um, and... And also another cool thing is that for every silver Y moth, which is one of the migratory moths mm. that we get here, that arrives in spring, four leave in autumn, which shows that actually it is quite a successful breeding strategy. Um, wow. So that was quite interesting. So mm. they, so those moths will come here to breed and then they all leave? Yeah, so they leave again in autumn, yeah. That's amazing. Cool. Then, do you know what's weird is that mm. you don't... You... <laughs> I, <laughs> moths and butterflies migrate in and then back out of the UK. You never see it though. Like it sounds yeah, so stupid well, to say, doesn't it? But you never see like a big, I don't know what the collective name of moths is. Do we have one? A wardrobe, a wardrobe of moths. <laughs> <laughs> you never see a big wardrobe of moth leaving the UK. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's because they migrate at really high altitudes. So really? there was this really cool study done, yeah, um, which was, it was looking at, well, it was actually comparing bird migration to moth migration and mm. looking at the different winds and the different altitudes. And basically, I really like the moth strategy because <laughs> the moths will go up and like sample the air. So they'll fly up, sample the air. Is, is this wind in the right direction? And then they're like, no and they'll go back down and they'll wait a day (laughs) and then they'll go up again and they kind of sample until the wind is going in the right direction and then basically it reminds me of that bit in Finding Nemo where they go on that ocean (laughs) current and they basically go up into the the wind thing and just fly and then they kind of drop down yeah and they just go whereas birds even if it's really rubbish weather and the wind is in the complete opposite direction they'll just fly anyway which seems like way more effort like the moths definitely have it down to a T because they're like yeah like this is what like this is when I want to go this is when I can so yeah it's really interesting so that might be why you don't you know if you're like I mean sometimes people report seeing loads of like painted but um painted lady butterflies like you know like arriving on the shore but yeah I think that might be why at ground level we don't see like massive swarms of moths which 
it's probably a good thing for like most people because most people don't like nature. We <laughs> had massive moth swarms. It would be like, oh my god. I love the fu- I love the idea of a moth just going up and sampling the air <laughs> like a, <laughs> yeah. like a flight connoisseur. Like no, it's not quite yeah. right. Not quite right today. Whereas birds are like you know the 18 year old binge drinkers they just go up there and go i'll take whatever mate give me give me a dirty pint and i'm off <laughs> like they don't care that's amazing but yeah so then going on to butterflies which we get in the uk um there are we so we have about 60 butterfly species in the uk and only three of them are migratory so it's actually oh, wow. quite a re- like a relatively small proportion um and again these tend to be species that have plant like caterpillar food plants mm-hmm. that are quite prevalent so things like um painted ladies with thistles and um red admirals or nettles so they're plants that you get quite ubi- u- ubiquitously <laughs> don't look at me <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's four o'clock um yeah so they're quite ubiquitous i think that's that was it you smashed anyway, it basically they occur everywhere um which yeah i suppose i found that quite interesting because you can kind of appreciate that you're not taking quite so much of a gamble can't you mm, because yeah. you're like yeah i'm gonna go and i'm probably gonna find something to lay my eggs on so it's probably gonna work and and you can see how evolutionarily that would be probably quite a, a strategy that works for some yeah. of them um and and i i don't I don't know loads and loads about butterflies, so I don't know how many do have really common food plants. Um, but a lot of them don't, do they? And that's why we have a lot of scarce butterflies mm-hmm. in the UK. So that might be why there's relatively few that actually do in the UK. But yeah, and also, um, so moving on from insects, we also have quite a lot of migratory species in our seas and in our rivers and oh, stuff. Oh, so, cool, okay. Um, so we have basking sharks, which um, appear off the coast of places like Devon and Cornwall and up in Scotland. In It's usually around midsummer. So when I was down in uni in Cornwall, we saw them around June time. You'd get loads. Um, well, not loads, but like that's when you'd see them. Um, and they, they coincide that with the um, sort of main or the biggest plankton bloom of the year. So they are planktonic, so they eat plankton. So they're not going to eat anybody, <laughs> even though they're the they're the um the I think it's the second, second largest shark. Yeah, well, after whale shark. Are they big? Second, are they bigger than the Greenland shark? I can't remember. I don't know. That I know they're bloody huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, them they they are massive. I've actually um been snorkeling with them. Which Have you actually? Really cool. Oh yeah, mate. Um, which was amazing but like yeah i think you have to go with a really responsible tour operator don't you because you don't want ones that are gonna take the mickey um but that was like super cool that was up in scotland um so yeah so they so they arrive in sort of midsummer and then sort of around september october time they leave and there's been some tracking work done because it wasn't really no one really knew exactly where they went and some head off towards like Newfoundland and some head down to sort of the Azores and the Bay of Biscay and stuff. Mm. So it's, they kind of just spread out and probably go where the food is. Um, but it's also thought that some stick around throughout the year because some fishermen have reported seeing them in Scotland in winter. Oh, okay. Um, and they've also been known to like wash up occasionally in the winter. So it might not be that that they might not be like an obligate mm. migrant, which means that they have to migrate. They might kind of be a facultative migrant which means they migrate where their food is and if there's enough food around that area then I guess they'd stick around yeah um and and sticking on the kind of like fish theme (laughs) (laughs) um we've got things like salmon um Atlantic salmon which are super cool um and they they basically chill out in the ocean and then when it's time to go and spawn they head to all the rivers so you see them sort of gathering around river mouths around the coast um and they spend about five years in the ocean um until they reach sexual maturity and then they go up to these rivers and they they make these incredible journeys to spawn basically in the rivers on the on these sort of gravels um and they undergo some really cool um changes as they do this because obviously seawater is super salty and then they they move into a freshwater environment so the whole 
chemistry of their cells that's something i learned a long time ago and i can't remember but they change it changes quite a lot yeah it's, it's basically amazing how adapted they are to do this um and then on the flip side of that you have the eels um which go so leave uk rivers to spawn in the sargasso sea i mm. hope i pronounced that right <laughs> um but which is amazing like i just i you know we massively ma- it's so easy to kind of be really underwhelmed by something like an eel which yeah. let's face it isn't like the sexiest creature but it does that ma- it does such an amazing journey um like the migration is about five thousand kilometers long which is just insane that is, um, that is and anyway mental. so yeah it's mental isn't it and then the eggs hatch in the sea and then they sort of um develop like the larvae develop into these little tiny um sort of glass eels i think they're called because they're transparent um and then they just kind of let themselves be floating around with the oceanic currents sort of bringing them back up towards europe and then they just yeah swim against the currents into the rivers in europe yeah and then they just chill in the rivers and then when they reach about a meter long they sort of you know are adults and then they just go back and do the spawny thing again and i think they i think i can't remember if they're critically endangered now but they were critically endangered for a long time because um we put in loads of like um weirs and you know like stuff along along the rivers that was blocking it like barriers to migration effectively like flood defenses as well and there's been a lot of work um by the environment agency and other organizations to be either removing them or to be creating fish passes so that they can actually kind of get up over over these obstacles so that they can carry on migration um which has been kind of interesting to learn about but yeah so so basically yeah like there's loads of different organisms that migrate to the uk and they're really diverse and they're really cool <laughs> i would love to i think the, the i think the animal that i most love to think about migrating in and out of the uk is a butterfly or a moth because i just mm. think it must be such a stressful journey <laughs> to be that high <laughs> yeah. up at, when you're the size of sometimes a 50 pence piece like you must just be getting yeah. thrown around and they're just like their little wings pushing them or just letting the current take them it must be absolutely terrifying but good on them for giving it a go um are there this is this might be a hard question but in the uk and it's probably species dependent but are there certain areas that certain animals kind of favor like for the reasons i guess they're visiting is it like if you want to see this animal migrate in the uk that's the area you go is there hot spots for migratory animals yeah kind of i think so again yeah like like you said it very much depends on the species so basking sharks for example you do tend to get you know off the coast of Cornwall Devon up in Scotland and that kind of thing I think more on the west sort of coast of the UK um and then you get you get certain species like like if you wanted to see swifts they tend to be more in the urban environments um because that's where they tend to nest yeah um and then swallows tend to be more like in, on like in farming environments and that kind of thing and they tend to nest in barns um you get some species i found this really interesting and i can't remember the specifics of the study but like for example chiff chaffs you get different populations going to different parts so so chiff chaffs from one part of africa might go up to like the north um oh, okay. of england and then chiff chaffs from a different population like you know in a different country in africa might go to a different part of the uk like the southern area yeah. and i think i think it was chiff chaffs that this happened with because i think they were they weren't doing very well in the north but they were doing fine in the south and then they realized that it's because they were migrating from different areas and there was an issue with the overwintering ground in the country in africa where they were coming to the north so i guess yeah so some I suppose some species you see them everywhere but they might not be from the same place um and then I mean if you want to see migration happening um it's a a really good place to be especially in the autumn is places like you can go down to obviously not at the moment yeah yeah (laughs) yeah Port and Bill um where there's like a bird observatory places like um we used to do ringing down at a site in the very west of Cornwall Mm. Um, called Nangisil and they got some really cool migrants there so basically anywhere where it's like the first landfall so that's good for Lepidoptera um, so Portland bird obs 
has a really cool website that I really recommend that people go and look at because it's just really interesting. You can just see they report like, oh, we saw swallows today. And you can see like, oh, my God, yay, swallows are arriving back. Or they've they've caught like some cool migratory moth. And oh, that's, so that's cool. quite cool. So, so in terms of where you might, if you wanted to go and see migration kind of happening, um, but obviously then again it very much depends on the species um, yeah. and what like what you might want to see but but yeah so i think that maybe that yeah, yeah. no no know. it does because i like i said it's a broad question because it obviously depends on the species the why the where um but that is good to know that where i guess the first bit of land and knowing that you know if you're going to spot an animal at a certain time that's the kind of area I guess this next question, Ellie, is probably going to be just as broad as my previous, but because it's going to depend on the reason why. But how long do certain animals like? Let's look. Okay, let's look at butterflies and different types of mm -hmm. moth. Maybe how long would they kind of stay in the UK? So I think with butterflies and moths, let's take moths because I know more about moth migration. So it's not the same individuals leaving that arrive. So you know, oh. I said about the multi generational thing. Yeah. So the ones that come from Europe they'll fly up in the spring or whenever and then they'll breed here and then those so the eggs will hatch the caterpillars will eat the food plant they'll get big they'll pupate they'll come out as a moth and then they'll be the ones that do the return migration so I suppose in that sense it's however long it takes for that cycle to happen wow okay so for that life cycle to happen I don't and I suppose it would be the same with butterflies um, you often get like clouded yellows, don't you? Which I don't know if they're true migrants, but they just sometimes turn up on the south coast mm. and they tend to be more like in the late, like more sort of August, September yeah. time, I think, like later on in the year. Um, but I, don't, I think they just, maybe that's when they're dispersing if they've hatched out. I don't know. That's just me. Guessing. Guess, yeah. Guess, Educated guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So, and then I suppose with, with, um, Let's think about another another example. Well, let, like, for example, cuckoos. Mm. Like, they're here for hardly any time, right? The males especially, because the males, all they want to do is, like, be like, cuckoo, I'm here, mate. <laughs> and then they mate. And then, they, you know, they, they're gone by, like, well, June, aren't they? So when do they arrive? I think. <laughs> um, usually mid-April. Like, well, yeah, so we, we tend to get them quite early on the new forest, mm. like, where I am. Um, but yeah, sort of mid-April to May, they'll be around. And the males, really, they stick, stick around for a number of weeks. And then once their job's done, you know, they don't even really have, you know, the females are the ones that are laying the eggs and have to wait and yeah. and do that. And then and then other species stay, so like chiff-chaff stay, you know, they arrive in mid-March, they're one of the first warblers to come back, and then they stick around until sort of like September. Or oh, wow, time. so quite a long time. Um, yeah, so a really long time. So it very much it varies depending on their like on their the, what they eat, their life history. You know, with cookies, their brood parasites. So the females don't stick around for that long either because they don't have to raise their own young. Yeah. Um. Whereas obviously most most birds do. So it varies depending on like a lot of different things. I guess. Yeah. Um. I didn't realize some some birds stay for that long. Like when you said that the cuckoos weren't mm -hmm. here for long, I was expecting like couple of days but even like the time that that's still quite a while to visit maybe ryan's basing it on a holiday time on the <laughs> should only be two weeks yeah. should be taking more holiday than that birds come on um <laughs> from birds actually i'm glad you brought that up because we're now going to be focusing a bit more on birds i think it's an obvious one when we talk about migration we think of birds because of the flight and we obviously birds have that superb ability to fly um and quite a hard question, but how many bird species do we see visit the UK? This is a hard question, I guess. I'm so sorry. I, can, I can't... No, it's fine. So I, I can't give you a number. Someone who is probably more knowledgeable than me mm. could give you a number, perhaps. But I'd say, first of all, it depends on what kind of migration you're looking at. Because with okay. birds, we have the summer visitors, um, which are like the warblers, the hirundines, like things like swifts, cuckoos... Mm some raptors that come like from places like Africa to the UK to breed. Yeah. Um, and then they return to their wintering grounds in the autumn. And then, and that's about, I think I read in a book, which you might be able to see on my shelf actually. <laughs> um, but there's, I think it said there are about 2 billion birds that leave Europe. So that's the whole of Europe, not um, just the UK. Wow. To Africa 
in the autumn but that's so that's all the migratory birds that arrived to breed and all their babies mm. so obviously the number of birds leaving in the autumn is going to be much bigger than the ones arriving yes. in the spring um to give you kind of an idea of the number and then we also have birds that arrive in the autumn um which is known as eruptive migration so that's not it's not quite the same as the birds that come to breed because it's not obligate it's mm. um it's a type of faculty facultative migration that means that they do it to basically it means that we get an irregular and unpredictable number of birds arriving in autumn um and that includes things like um red wings and field fairs and wax wings bramblings Mm. red poles and siskins hawfinches so Oh, and goldcrest and firecrest as well so basically the number that arrive will depend on the amount of food and the weather conditions in the countries that they're coming from so parts of europe yeah. and scandinavia um and and we get things even like things like chaffinches and blackbirds we sometimes get ones coming over from the continent yeah so i guess that's a different type so usually with those ones we tend to have some that are resident so um like hawfinches we have a resident population but then we get an mm. influx in autumn um and some years you get like a waxwing year or a brambling year where you get like a load coming over and and it's you know there's ones visiting people's feeders or people see them a lot and then other years there aren't so many um and again i don't so i don't know um i can tell you how many like species of those there are um, I couldn't top them all up. And obviously over winter, you have, um, like in terms of waders as well, you have a lot of different wader species coming to overwinter and feed on all the mudflats as well. So there's like different kind of groups and different types of movements, I suppose. That, that's amazing that we actually have like resident species and then those species also have migratory populations coming in as well to like almost top mm. them up. That's quite amazing. I didn't know that was a thing. So that's just, is that just like a population have managed to just out, like stay here i don't know really i don't know if it's because we like if you're thinking about like let's take gold crests for example mm. like they're tiny and they you know they they eat insects so they are try, like constantly foraging for like spiders eggs and you know like little tiny insect prey they don't switch to seeds or anything um in the winter Mm. um so i guess maybe in their other ranges it's just too cold for that kind of prey to be around in big numbers or yeah i don't really know i think it probably i think it is mainly food and weather like if it if it's if their kind of home range is somewhere that's like way colder than it is in the uk in winter then I guess it makes sense to come here to avoid this the extreme cold because a tiny bird like that wouldn't like do yeah of course yeah that makes sense the time but I yeah it's interesting isn't it you kind of wonder how these different movements evolved yeah but I guess it's the same with like I don't know even when you look at like what people do we all do it for different reasons and there's different populations of birds in different areas and the same with other animals as well so they're all going to do slightly different things depending on the environment that's around them and if they're coming from, like you said, an area that's suddenly getting a lot colder or suddenly getting a lot warmer, then, you know, different behaviours we're going to start seeing set in, I guess. It's just, I guess we don't often give that thought to animals having that ability to go, well, we're going to do this thing because, I don't know, maybe I'm humanising it too much. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of interesting to know that happens as well. Have you got a favourite yeah. migratory bird that comes into the UK? Or is there one that you really get pumped about seeing? I mean... I'm indecisive, so this is a hard question. <laughs> but I would, I would, I would, I would narrow it down to two. I don't think I could go any smaller than that. So the first one is a cuckoo, um, and that's because they are so cool, like super cool birds, like really interesting life history. Hearing a male cuckoo is like it's spring. <laughs> spring is really here. The cuckoos are back. Like it's 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 really it's one of those things that it's just like oh yay, um and also swifts and for a similar reason in that like hearing the kind of screaming cry of a swift I mean to me that's summer because yeah really it is for me as well May onwards, yeah you? and they're here for such a short time so I think I don't think I could choose between those two 
Um, and I've I've actually only had a female cuckoo once because the females make this like bubbling call, which is really different to the males. Um, and I I heard that I remember I was it was on Dartmoor actually. I'd gone camping with my friends, and we had had a really nice sunny evening. And then in the afternoon it like started to rain and then a storm came over and in the morning it was like really calm and really foggy and I'd gone like for a wild wee <laughs> and then I was like oh my god I can hear a female cuckoo like I've wanted to hear this for so long so that was like yeah that was really cool but yeah one of those two definitely what a moment <laughs> a I wild know. wee female cuckoo there's so many words in that sentence Ellie look <laughs> um but this is th- like, like from birds migrating as well. This is where we're going to talk about something that you are very active in because it kind of plays a part in how we know birds migrate and where birds go, as we've learned over the many, many, many years. Um, it's where bird ringing comes in, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So bird ringing is where we catch wild birds and we fit them with a small, lightweight metal ring um, that is, it's it's stamped with a unique ID number. So it allows us to identify individual birds. Um, And from this, we can collect a lot of data. So we can collect data on movements, on age, so how long a bird might live, um, things like site fidelity, so whether or not a bird's coming back to the same site every year and all of those kinds of things. So it's it gives us an awful lot of data mm. um, just from a little metal ring. <laughs> <laughs> and like, how is it used for... So you gave us some examples there of like kind of what we can tell, but when, when you've got that information, is it kind of shared like globally? Like, so if someone scans or looks at a ring, you know, several countries away, can they still get that data and understand that information? Yeah, so um, I think sometimes it takes a long time. So um, like I've heard of sometimes like someone will catch a Spanish ringed bird and it takes like months or years to actually get the record <laughs> back. But um, most of the time it's a lot more efficient than that. Um, and yeah, it's it's wherever there's like a ringing scheme, it, you know, you can con- say so R in the UK, our, our rings are stamped with NHM London, so Natural History oh, okay, Museum cool. London. So people who catch it in France or Spain or wherever in the world can be like, oh, okay, that's uh, an English ringed bird or a British ringed bird, and and they can contact the British Trust for Ornithology and then and then find out when it was ringed and that kind of thing. That's cool. That's really cool. And like like (laughs) there's probably many ways to do this how do you no first question like all birds not all birds are ringed right is that a stupid question no so not all birds are ringed um there are some birds that you can't ring so for example you can't ring pheasants um partly because they're an introduced species but also their leg never stops growing so oh it gets God. fatter and fatter as the bird gets older obviously you're not going to put a ring on that because um, <laughs> you, you know you'd end up hurting yeah. the bird um but most birds we do most species we do ring. Yeah. um but i'm not entirely i think there are some but they're not ones that i tend to ring obviously because otherwise yeah I yeah know. of course yeah <laughs> I know you know the ones you do <laughs> yeah i know the, the ones that i do ring. and how do you go about ringing a bird it sounds so hard. <laughs> so first you've got to catch it. That's the bit that's hard. <laughs> yeah, um, so it's done in different ways, um, depending on the bird that you're targeting. Um, so, and and this is where I guess, so like all bird ringers in the UK have a license mm. and you've got to be properly trained for it. So, um, for example, my license allows me to use something called a mist net. Um, it's basically like a net strung between two vertical poles and it's got sort of pockets in the net that sort of droop down and so when Mm. a bird flies into it they fall into the pocket and then you have but for example a whoosh net which is it's a sort of bungee operated net that oh my god say if you you i know so and it kind of you it basically is propelled across an area of ground and it falls gently over the ground so that's good for some ground feeding birds that sounds like fun to fire (laughs) yeah right and my permit doesn't cover that because i've not had 
enough experience using that method of catching so so basically it means that mm. if you're if you're licensed to operate a certain way of catching birds then you know what you're doing um so you've got wish net you've also got cannon netting which is a bit like Whoa. a wish net but on like a bigger scale and yeah oh my gosh. The name, it uses like a little cannon thing that i want to do that that's what i want to do <laughs> What's the next yeah. one? I feel like these are getting more and more extreme. <laughs> the so there's like the, the, the mist net, there's the gun net, the cannon net, and then there's the explosive volcanic 2000. It's like, what's that for? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think cannon nets as cool as, like, well, as dramatic as it gets. And then you've got... Oh, no, we've got to go higher. Some... <laughs> yeah, like the nuclear net. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then you have different traps and that kind of thing as well. So you have some that are like walking traps. So if you've got a bird that's just hopping around and then you can mm. kind of slowly edge it in and you can walk it into a trap or you have other ones like a perch trap where like a bird comes to perch and then it closes round it and that kind of thing, which are way less frequently used. Like mist netting is like definitely the most common method and then followed by like whoosh and cannon, I think, just because it depends what species you're after. Um, certain... Um, so, for example, with n- mist nets as well, depending on what bird you're after, you have different sizes. So if you're trying to catch waders, then you want one with like much deeper pockets um, because they're bigger birds. So they need a bigger net to hold them and that kind of thing. Um, mm. So, yeah. So anyway, once you've got your bird and you've safely extracted it from the net, then you fit a ring on its leg. So um, you have to hold it in a special way, um, which is a grip called the ringer's grip. Um, and you end up holding the leg between usually your third finger and your thumb. So you hold it in a special way, which just restrains the bird. So you've got its you've got its head between. So sorry, <laughs> the listeners would not index see this, finger but... and middle finger are be- between. <laughs> yeah, Ryan's doing all sorts of hands. Ryan's just sat you know. here like um... as if I'm doing the rock and roll signal. <laughs> Yeah, not sure you'd be able to ring a bird like that. But anyway, so you hold it no. in a special grip and you use pliers um, to put a ring on. And these mm. are special pliers and they've got different sized holes for the different uh, sized rings. So obviously for a blue tit or a long tail tit, um, yeah. they both have different ring sizes and a black bird will take a bigger one, a tawny owl will take a bigger one. So you've got special um, pliers that are specially adapted. And then once you've fitted the ring, you then age it and sex it, which is usually done on plumage and that kind of thing. But mm. some birds you can't age and sex. Um, and you take measurements like the wing length and the weight, which gives us kind of like a BMI almost. So yeah. Um, so it kind of like if you catch a gold crest and it's only like 4.9 grams, you're like, oh, you're a bit tiny. You probably need to go and eat. But some are really heavy and that kind of thing. Um, and some ringers take other measurements as well. But they're like the bog standard ones. So that's what's involved in ringing a bird that's so cool because i see so many pictures um i mean you you put up a fair few as well and then so many other bird ringers put up the pictures of them holding the bird and they're always such lovely pictures because you've just got the bird there and yeah <laughs> so it's like a perfect yeah. photo op opportunity but it's um a photo op opportunity was a stupid way to say that um <laughs> good photo op um <laughs> Once you've got the bird ring on, I mean, how is that information used in wildlife conservation? So a crucial part of wildlife conservation is population monitoring and bird ringing allows us to monitor populations. So if we don't know how species are doing, then we don't know which species are declining and which ones are doing fine. And therefore, we don't know where to direct our conservation efforts. So bird ringing is well, the data from bird ringing can be combined with other surveys um, by the British Trust for Ornithology, which is the organisation that organises uh, bird ringing. And and basically from this, so there's like the nest record scheme and reef trapping adults for survival. So from these kind of three strands of monitoring, we can get really useful information on Um, bird numbers so the number of chicks that are fledged from a nest um, and the number of young that survive and also the number of adults that survive and kind of knowing about these different parts of the life cycle of the bird can help us to pinpoint reasons for decline as well or at least identify why a bird might be declining so if you have say a migratory bird species Mm. and we perhaps over a period of five or ten years we're seeing that fewer and fewer adults are returning every spring 
that would lead us to believe that there was probably a problem on its migration route, um, at stopover sites along its migration route or in its overwintering site. Whereas if it's coming every year, like the same number are coming every year, but then they're not producing as many fledglings, then we know that it's probably something here to do with the breeding um, attempts here. So, and then, and kind of having that knowledge then allows us to know where to focus our resources, which as you know, are super limited in conservation anyway. So it's really useful to help to, so I suppose it, it's good because you can kind of see things as they're happening. So you can closely monitor population change yeah. and make sure that if there are any declines, you're picking them up as soon as possible. And also it allows us to kind of have a guess of where or what the cause of decline might be. Okay, that's, that's oh God, that's a lot. Yeah, when you put it like that, it's kind of like, wow, it, of course it helps with conservation because like you said, it can pinpoint, <laughs> well, it pinpoints trends, which is so easy. It like kind of takes so much of the work out of it going, if you can just see where the problem is straight away, you can deal with the problem because half the work is going to go, is, is you know, people start there going, well, what's going on? So my last question, Ellie, is the Into the Wild one, is if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet about the natural world, what would it be? It would be to get out there and enjoy it and learn about it. Because I think the more that people know about it, the more they respect it and the yeah. more that they want to look after it. And I think, uh, like, you know, to go in a massive loop right back to the start of our conversation about what we were saying about the new forest mm. and people, you know, not treating it with respect, if they really knew just how many amazing species are there, just how important it is for biodiversity, then I th I would hope that most people would treat it with a lot more respect and would really realise just how valuable it is. Um, so, you know, if we could apply that to everything and and get people to see it as something that is so important and so precious and it does so much for us mm. and we need it we can't keep destroying it then hopefully that would help to um, get people to reconnect with nature and help boost people's well-being and all of that kind of stuff and hopefully help the natural world as well so yeah get out there <laughs> get, get, get out there so to, to sum up get out um <laughs> Yeah. Ellie, thank you so much for being on today's show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I've learned so much um, about well, about birdering and about migration. It's been lovely to chat to you about it. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show. And I wish you the best for uh, the rest of the year. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Thanks again for tuning in and listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Ellie is working on, you can do so on the old social media or on Instagram. You can follow her at at Ellie Mayhew. If you want to subscribe to Into the Wild's Patreon, that's basically where you tip me a bit of cash, enough for me to buy a pint or a coffee, and you get a few perks. You get early access to all the episodes, and you get exclusive shows as well. And like I said at the beginning, if you want to send Ryan a sympathy e-card for his sore hand, <laughs> or just get in touch in general, you can do so at intotheworldpod at gmail.com, or we're also on social media at intotheworldpod on Twitter and intotheworldpodcast on Instagram. You can give me a shout, just say hello if you want, suggest a topic for an episode, um, or let us know some things that you liked about the previous shows. But until next time, keep well, stay safe, live the good life, and I'll speak to you next week. Take care. <laughs>